This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, so let's talk for a moment about a very common problem. The one thing that health experts, dietitians, athletes, and top performers all seem to agree upon is the perfect diet does not exist. Even with a balanced, healthy diet, it can be tough to cover your nutritional basis through food alone. This is why there is Athletic Greens. The Athletic Greens Ultimate Daily All-in-One Health Drink has 75 proven vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, which make it easier for you to get that comprehensive nutrition without the need for multiple pills, powders, or complex routines. It is the most complete supplement for a better you, and it's different from everything else. It's different because it's delivered in powder form, and it's mixed with water, athletic greens, then requires less capsules, it has superior absorption, and it does not include any binders or fillers. One scoop of athletic greens provides a convenient, affordable, and tasty solution to fill the gaps in your diet. So if you're looking to boost energy, strengthen your immune system, or or support gut health, this is the absolute product for you. Why not just give it a try? Jump on over to athleticgreens.com slash Rome. Claim my special offer right now. 20 free travel packs valued at 79 bucks with your first purchase. Athleticgreens.com slash Rome. Athleticgreens.com slash Rome. Who was the toughest guy you ever dropped gloves with? Oh, it'd be Marty McSorley. He made himself into an excellent, like really good hockey player. But when he first started... Jim, I'm telling you, like, he couldn't play in a beer league. So if he was going to stay in the league, he was going to have to fight and fight every night. But the problem was that once I fought him now, even if nothing was going on, he'd just get by me and go, Layla, let's go. I finally go, listen, I'm not keeping you in the league anymore. You find somebody else, I'm not fighting you It's cracking, everybody. Jim Rome here. Welcome to another episode of the ever-growing phenomenon that is the Jim Rome Podcast. We powered right through Ep 100 a couple of weeks back, and this train is not slowing down. Today on the pod, our guest was an 11-year vet of the National Hockey League, drafted by the New York Rangers, traded to the LA Kings, where he and I met way back in the day. After his playing days, he transitioned into a player agent, and then most recently has made his mark as a motivational speaker and a guru with a podcast and a soon-to-be-released book about what he calls the true grit life. Oh, and this, he was a breakout star on season 39 of Survivor, where he was the first former NHL player and the first ever Canadian cast on that show. I'm talking about my guy, Tom Laidlaw. I love the man. Let's not waste any time with it. Ep 102 of the Jim Rome Podcast with Tom Laidlaw gets rolling right now. Tom, this is so fun to get caught up with you. You played, for those who do not know, you played 11 years in the NHL with the Rangers and the Kings. And when I broke into radio back in the day, and before I'd done any TV work, you would come on my radio program. We'd chop it up about the Kings and the league. It was an absolute blast. And now you're 60, and you recently became the first Canadian-born player to ever appear on the show Survivor, and you were the oldest player. Bring me up to date. How did this come to be, and how did you end up on that show? Well, let's get a few things straight right off the bat here. First of all, I'm 61, and as I remember it, I thought that was my radio show, but uh, we'll, we'll move on from that. You probably but, do remember uh, it that way. It's uh, it's great to talk to you again, Jim. Um, you know, it was funny. Uh, the NHL was approached by people from uh, Amazing Race uh, about trying to find some former players to get on Amazing Race. Uh, the NHL contacted the Rangers. The Rangers contacted me, and, and we were looking around for somebody that was in shape and had a passport and everything, and you know, they could get on the show with me and really couldn't find anybody that fit the bill. So uh, they then moved on to Survivor. And, you know, I do all this true good life stuff now, which is all about, you know, discipline and integrity and everything. And I thought to myself, oh, geez, I want to go on Survivor because, you know, integrity is the last word you associate with Survivor. But once I got my head around the fact that it was really just a TV show and that, um, 
you know, I, I could really go after watching a lot of the shows. I realized I could really go play the way I wanted to play, and I didn't have to necessarily be that guy that was constantly misleading people. Although you got to do some of it, then uh, then I was out going home. It was uh, we it was it was a fun process. We had to go out for L.A. to out to L.A. for uh, casting and uh, and uh, do all kinds of testing, physical and psychological testing. And surprisingly, I, I passed the psychological testing after all that. <laughs> It's really funny. So, I mean, I want to get into a lot of what you just said, but what about the audition process? It's like a five-day process, physical testing, psychological testing. You may joke of it, but what exactly is that audition process like? What's that consist of? Well, it's pretty interesting. They, you know, they're out there with uh, you know nineteen other potential contestants, and you're in a hotel there, and they really they want all interaction uh, with the con- with the contestants on the camera. So during that time, there's no cameras around, so you you really can't talk to anybody else that's, that's trying out to be in the show. Uh, again, there's some physical testing, uh, you know, to make sure you can swim and, uh, you know, you can run and your, you know, the doctors check you out and all that stuff. But the, a big chunk of it was really the psychological testing to really, uh, I think a few things that first of all, make sure you could handle the psychological part of the game out there. And I think, I think also, and I don't know, this is my speculation. A part of it is that they know from the psychological testing that they do, who's going to be uh, for what role and who's going to, some people are going to get along. Some, some people are going to have conflicts between the two of them. They know what they want in each contestant. So they do a lot of testing. And even when I got back from LA, they had me do more testing. I think part of that was because you know, I played, I had a number of concussions and they want to make sure that uh, I wasn't going to snap out there on the Island or something. Hmm. So, Tom, you played 11 years in the NHL, and I don't in any way mean to disrespect what you accomplished as a professional athlete, but you're in amazing shape right now. And I don't mean for a 61-year-old, but I mean period. You're in amazing shape. It seems crazy to ask, but are you possibly in as good a shape right now as you were when you played in the NHL? Well, you know what, Jim? It's, it's, it's interesting. I think I'm actually in better shape than I ever was. I, we just didn't know back then. We didn't know about conditioning. We didn't know about, you know, working your core. We didn't know about diet. We didn't know about hydration. Didn't know, uh, yeah, and didn't know about the mental part, like how you could train your mind. Um, I was very fortunate. I had a trainer here uh, locally back here in New York. Uh, I was good friends with, and he was really into how your mind is, you can really control your body. So he would have me do things like, uh, I, he would have me memorize a poem. And I was able to recite the poem perfectly. And then he would do something to elevate my heart rate. Either I would get on a bike or he'd just aggravate me somehow, trying to simulate the things that would happen on Survivor. And inevitably, I, I would then go back and try to recite the poem, and I couldn't recite it the same way I could prior to having my elevated heart rate. So it was first, you know, recognizing that that was happening to me, and then what do I do about it? Um, you know, I had learned I had to take a deep breath. It may be different for you than it is for me to control all that. I had to just physically stop and take a deep breath and really accentuate taking the deep breath. So all those things now that I know about my body that I didn't know, you know, the mind and how the mind controls your body and everything and vice versa, I, I just didn't understand those things. It was the old school, you know, ride the bike, lift weights, and, you know, go have a couple of beers mentality back then. Um, so, yeah, I do think I'm in better shape. And I think I'm more mentally... Uh, able to handle things now you know i've got my whole routine that i have you know getting up at three thirty in the morning and all that stuff so um I, I just think i'm stronger mentally and physically than i've ever been all right so that's all part of the true grit life which i'll get to in a minute but you mentioned the game itself and as part of the true grit life it, a lot of that is integrity and honesty and the fact of the matter is to be successful on survivor there's a lot of backstabbing there's a lot of scheming that you need to do to have success on that program but again tom that runs counter to what you've learned and how you've approached your entire life you've always been a team guy first so did that mentality hurt you on the show, and how did you approach it? Well, I think it, it ultimately did hurt me, but I really went out there saying to myself, you know, if you watch all the players that have played in the past and players that have won, there's so many different styles of games that they played. There's some people that have just been totally dishonest, lied to everybody. There's been other people that, you know, have really played the game with some integrity. And again, it sounds strange to say that, but, you know, they've, really, they've, they've uh, formed an alliance and they've really stuck with that alliance. And that alliance has really helped them along the way. Now, of course, at some point, they have to decide that they, you know, it's, it's all about myself. I have to win. And to win, I have to now do whatever I have to do to win. If it means hurting somebody I've aligned myself with, you just that's understood as part of the game. But it really, to me, was, um, you know, growing up in Canada and playing hockey, you're kind of taught that, you know, you need to respect your teammates, respect your parents, respect your siblings, you know, referees, all that stuff. But when it comes time to win, you do anything to win. If you have to, we're taught as kids, it sounds a little bit barbaric, but, you know, if you have to break somebody's arm to win, that's what you do. 
so that was kind of the mentality I went into the game with. And um, ultimately, I think it did cost me. We had a, a tribe swap, and and uh, I, the people I had aligned myself with all ended up going over to the other tribe. So my new people knew that you know I was I was that loyal guy. And you know, part of me was really happy that that's the way they they saw me, and then that's the way I played the game. But in the end, that's why they felt like they had to get rid of me because I was still going to be loyal to my uh, to people I aligned with that were now on the other tribe. All right, so Tom, you know, if you had a problem with somebody on the ice, you could handle your problem, right? You could drop gloves yep. and handle it that way. It doesn't necessarily work that well on the island. So how did you handle it if somebody got under your skin or disrespected you on the island? <laughs> That's a great question because there's a couple of times that I was tested pretty good. But uh, I really think it was that mental uh, training that I'd done to prepare myself that, you know, if somebody's doing something, yeah, you're right. I can't react to it because if I react now, I've got a target on my back. You know, now they're, now I've given them a reason to vote me off. So I really, I, I use that training that I use, uh, you know, that mental training to just say, listen, I, I know what's going to happen. And I think that was the key was going out there. I, there wasn't any surprises, you know, where they, the way the game is played, you know, in fact, some people, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get under your skin. And you really just got to focus the fact that you're playing the game. And that was the part that really that pleasantly surprised me, that as soon as we got out there, you know, I felt like you know, I was in game mode right away. And, and all the other players were, too. They got playing the game right away. Uh, there was no, like, you know, you know, feeling out process, whatever. Everybody just started playing. And, and it was funny because we all got along great. We were laughing. We had a really fun group of people on our tribe. Now, within that, we also knew that, you know, behind the scenes, everybody was scheming to stab each other in the back. And that was just part of the game. And I think that's, that's what kind of helps you survive it. Uh, strange way to survive it, but uh, uh, you, because you know that that's what the game is. You know that going into it, that it it is the game. That's what people are trying to do. They're trying to do whatever they can to get a target off them and get it onto somebody else. And if you, then that's that's the way it works out. You know, Tom, it's hard to imagine, but you're the first Canadian-born contestant in the history of that program. Well, how much did that mean to you? How much pride do you take in that fact? Yeah, you know what? It's funny you say that because at first I didn't think that much of it, and uh, as we get closer to the game. And it became uh, such a bigger topic. I realized, wow, you know that—that's a responsibility, especially you know being hockey being such a big thing in Canada, and me being a player. You know, I realized, well, you know, I'm I'm representing my country here, really. I mean, it's you know, it's not like the the world's going to fall apart if I don't do well. But I, I really wanted to play with that mentality that I talked about before, with the, that you, you know, you're raised the way I was raised is you know having respect for everybody, and I wanted to treat people that way out there in the game. That you know, I, I respect everybody. I respect the fact that they're there to win as much as I am there to win. Not that I want them to win. They want it to be me. But at the same time, the way I was taught was when it comes time to win, you know, like we had, a, we did a blind side right off the bat in the first tribal council. And I put that together, you know, and that was hard because, uh, you know, some guy was going to go home with the first, you know, the first vote out, which is kind of tough, but you know, I was there to win, you know? So I, I tried to play with that respect, but also, you know, you know, they, they, I was there to win, and that's the way we were taught in Canada, especially as athletes, to go up, you respect people, but then when it comes time to you or them, it's it's got to be you that wins. Now, I'm probably like a lot of you. I think many of us have got the exact same question, namely, where does our family come from? What is our background? Well, you can discover more about your family and learn about your own story by combining the Ancestry DNA test with billions of historical family records. Ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the places you're from. It's like this. Ancestry connects you to the places in the world where your story started, and they're able to do so by using precise geographic detail and clear-cut historical insights. I'm, I'm telling you, it's amazing what they can uncover. You can even trace your ancestors' journeys over time. You can follow how and why your family moved from place to place, things you don't even know about. And then to amplify your results, you can start a free trial on Ancestry and build a tree. They have combined DNA results with over 100 million family trees, plus billions of records to give you more insight into your genealogy and origins. Like only Ancestry can lay out a story like this with unique features to give a more complete picture about a person. You know, like the events that shaped that person, how they made a living, what they excelled in, and more. And it's easy to get started. Just go to Ancestry.com slash Rome right now. Get 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash Rome and take 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Again, Ancestry.com slash Rome. It's an amazing process. It's fascinating. Check it out for yourself. 
All right, so part of the True Grit life, you're up at 3.30 every morning. We'll talk about that, but you're in the gym, you're working out, you're fueling yourself up, you're really cognizant of what you're putting into your body. What's the food situation like on the island? As an example, how many calories a day do you normally consume, and then what kind of calorie intake did you have there? Yeah, normally um, I bring in anywhere from 3,000 to 3,500 calories a day. And out there, they tell me, I wasn't you know, able to measure it, but uh, it's rice and coconuts pretty much all the time. And so you're really getting around 300 calories a day. Mm. And uh, so I, my weight, I bulked up and put on about an extra 10 pounds before I went out there figuring, you know, I'm going out there to win, which means you're out there for 39 days. So you need as much, you know, fat as you got to burn off. Um, so I, I still lost 27 pounds when I was out there. Um, but it, you know, it's funny, you know, you're so uh, mentally into the game that, you know, you just, all those things about being hungry and everything, it just doesn't, it's there, but it doesn't seem to consume you because you're constantly playing the game. Even in the middle of the night, people will be waking up, you know, if it's raining there, you use that as an excuse to go sit by the fire and talk to somebody else and strategize or somebody's looking for an idol. So you're, you're constantly going in the game and all those things about being hungry and tired just seem to kind of fade away. But uh, it, it was, that, that kind of surprised me too. All right, so give me, what was your biggest takeaway from the experience? It sounded like it was an amazing opportunity. What was your biggest takeaway? Yeah, it was, Jim. It was fantastic. It was one of those deals when you're out there, you're going, wow, this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. You know, you're in Fiji. You know, you're playing a game probably only 600 people have ever played in the last, you know, 20 years. And uh, and I, I think, you know, for me, it's, uh, you know, doing the True Grit Life, and I do, you know, public speaking, you know, your book and podcast and all that. And when I talk to people, I'm always trying to motivate them. Like I say, listen, you don't have to get up at 3.30 in the morning like me, but get up earlier and do things, accomplish things. And I say to them, listen, it doesn't matter how old you are or what your height is, what your skin color is, your weight or whatever. You know, if, there's got, if there's something you want to accomplish, don't use something as an excuse. So I think it just gives me another kind of notch on the belt, I guess, to be able to say to people, listen, I've done it in my life. You know, I've you know, playing in the National Hockey League and being an agent, now being on Survivor, I didn't use you know, the fact that I was turned to 61 to, to not go on the island. In fact, I wanted to not just play, but I wanted to, you know, play as a 61-year-old. I wanted to play as a player. I wanted to, I didn't want somebody to say, well, you're doing well as a 61-year-old. I wanted to do, I just wanted to do well. And I think I really accomplished that. I mean, obviously you'd want to go farther in the game, but, you know, that's probably one of the biggest things that I'll take away from it is I go back to people and I'll say, listen, you can do anything you want to do. It doesn't matter what your age is. All right, so it's been an amazing journey, right? So you played in the NHL for 11 years, and then you started your own agency. You're a player agent. You're a motivational speaker right now. You're a guru of sorts. You've got a website. You've got a podcast called True Grit Life. But in fact, it's a lifestyle. What exactly is the True Grit Life, and what does it take to live that life? Well, the True Grit Life to me is a few things. It's uh, you know, It all started for me when I started you know, doing the book, and I thought back about growing up on a farm in Canada with my grandfather and father. And you know, they're, they just, they had to get up as a dairy farm. So they were up every day, twice a day, milking those cows. It did not matter uh, if they were sick or tired or what was going on. And nobody was there writing an article about them, telling them how great they were. There was no fanfare. They just had their job to do. And that's really the true good life. It's people and they're all over the place. People are, I mean, you're the same way with your career. I know you've done very well, but you know, it was a lot of hard work for you to get where you are today. And that's, case with a lot of people out there and in your case you're a little bit more fortunate because people see what you're doing and they recognize how great you are but there's a lot of other people out there in the world that are doing that hard work and nobody really pats them on the back or anything uh, but they're very important part of, of their kids lives or you know the community's lives they could coach sports and everything so it's really those people that get up every day and it's every day and it's getting the most out of your life that's why i say when i go on a march four in the morning it's, it's a walk but the idea is that you are getting the most out of every stride and that gets you started in the day so when i get up at three thirty, i make my bed perfectly so it isn't done halfway it's done perfectly so you're getting the most out of everything you do and that's that's a lot of the true good life it's getting up every day and grinding it out and get the most out of every day in your life and and it isn't just about the hard work too like i said people like live your life all out like if it's if it's time to sit there and have a margarita i mean you get the big margarita going and have a blast just get up the next day and do the work. It's the full thing. It's it's living your life all out every day. All right. So why why do you get up at three thirty? You know, I think it's the um, it really goes back to you know how I was raised, where you know it's you know it's it's getting up that early. It's that discipline thing. It's it's tough to do at first, and people go, "Wow!" Like you know, that's, that's crazy getting up at three thirty. And I say to other people, I said, listen, it's for me. That's it just, it, for some reason, it just, it gets me more motivated. Like I said, I get, get up at three thirty, And when I make my bed in the morning, I make it perfect. 
And when I walk out the door, I look at it and I go, wow, I'm up at 3.30 again. Like, it's another accomplishment. I've done something to start the day that I don't have to do. I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it right. And it just gets me motivated in the morning. And, again, not everybody else has to do that to live the true good life. They just need to get up with a vengeance and, and do it. Get started right away. If you're up at 7 normally and you, and you feel like you don't have enough time in the day, then get up at 6 o'clock and accomplish something more. Get more out of your life. So for me, it's like it, it feels better for me to get up at three thirty. I know it sounds a little strange, but it also is. It helps me when I go out and speak to other people to say, "Listen, I get up at three thirty every every day. That's my thing. You don't have to do that. You need to get up at what time works for you. Just get up earlier and get something done in your day." Tom, what time do you go to bed? You know, it's funny. It's uh, you know, we had a, a alumni weekend this weekend where we were up in Boston. The Rangers alumni was playing a charity game up there. Uh, Saturday, we had a dinner on Friday night, played the game Saturday, bus back, and had an alumni game on Sunday at Madison Square Garden. And, you know, we're up late um, every night, you know, like, you know, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, whatever it is. And I just pop out of bed at 3.30, and uh, I get up and I do my video, and people are looking at the video, and they're going, are you nuts or what? And it's just, uh, I think because, you know, it just motivates me so much now that it's it's not really a challenge to, to get up at 3.30, even if I've gone to bed at 12. Now, if I'm getting like, you know, three or four hours of sleep, then I may grab a 20 minute nap or something during the day. But most times, you know, if I'm in bed by 10 o'clock, then up at 3.30, then we're ready to go. I want to ask you something, Tom. You, you admire guys, the same, the same types of guys that I admire. Like I admire you and the True Grit Life. I know you admire guys like Jocko Willink and David Goggins. And I think the three of you, and although you might approach it differently, I think the three of you feel pretty strongly that if you're doing something really physical and you're just attacking something, like Goggins is an ultramarathon, or we know how Jocko feels about getting up at 4.30 and hitting the weight room. You get up and you have your march, and I know you're spending a lot of time in the weight room. But I'm trying to figure out how this applies to, like, you know, desk jockeys or people who are normal, can we live that true grit life and get that superior discipline without spending two hours a day in the gym? How do people, sure. normal people, approach that to get that edge? Well, that's that's a great question. I, I think, first of all, the answer is definitely yes. Everybody can have that discipline in their life. It may come in the form of cleaning up your diet. It may come in the form of not sitting around and watching TV all night. It may, maybe you volunteer your time. Something instead of doing something that is just wasting your time, have something in your life that you're trying to accomplish, that you're giving back to the community. You're making yourself a better person. Like for me, the diet comes along with it too. Like most people, if they're overweight or whatever, they're looking at themselves and they're just not happy with themselves. And it's just like, it's this downward spiral. They're not feeling happy about themselves. So they don't do anything. It just keeps getting worse and worse. At some point you got to say to yourself, okay, listen, I'm getting up and I'm going, it doesn't matter. Like I said, it doesn't matter. You don't get up at three 30. You don't have to pound the weights at the gym. You got to get up and do something better. Instead of having a you know bacon, egg, and cheese in the morning, have something more healthy for you to eat. You know, get on a diet. Uh, you know, walk walk farther. You know, if you if you're going to a mall or going to work, like don't park in the parking spot closest to work. Park in the spot, parking spot farthest away from your work. That way, your car won't get banged around, and you're going to get more exercise. Get in the habit of doing little things like that. It sounds kind of funny, and that's the thing with like making the bed for me. It sounds kind of funny that how important that is a part of my life. But it started when I watched this this Navy SEAL admiral, this William McRaven. He did a speech in front of a graduating class. I think it was University of Texas, and he was standing there, you know, with the big white the uniform and all the, you know, the medals and everything on his chest, and this totally disciplined man. He was talking about all the things he learned in his Navy SEAL training. And the first thing he talked about was the importance of making his bed and not, and not just making the bed, but making it perfect. And he himself even kind of giggled at first because that's not what you figured he'd be talking about. But when he explains what it means, like how important it is to have that discipline every day, it's a small thing. Nobody else usually sees it, but you're doing it and you're doing it perfectly. You're not just doing it halfway. Like those kinds of things now start to build you know, that discipline in your life and you see how much better you feel about yourself because you're doing things for yourself. You're not doing it for anybody else. You're not putting on a show for somebody else. You're doing it because you want to make yourself a better person. And I think those kinds of things, you know, you're right. You don't have to pound the weights, but those little things that bring more discipline into your life just make you feel better as a person. Yeah, what I'm loving about this conversation, aside from you and I connecting and getting caught up, is we still have not talked hockey. And I do want to talk hockey before you go. Yep. But like in terms yep. of nutrition, Tom, what do you do? Are you a plant-based guy? Do you not do that? Like, What are you fueling your body with? Yeah, you know what? It's uh, I, I really kind of evolve. Uh, you know, I wasn't always really good with my diet. I was that old school farm boy from Canada where it's a lot of meat, a lot of baked potatoes and everything. And as time's gone on, I, like, just like my training and my discipline, I think I've learned more. So 
you know, I do think it's, you know, a lot of fishes, a lot of, uh, you know, sweet potatoes and that. I have now tried to switch. I don't think I'll ever go totally over to plant-based. I do think there's still importance to have some meat and some fish and chicken uh, that you're eating. But I do see the advantage now of being more plant-based. And I do think that part of the problem in the past was you thought that, well, if I really want to work hard, I want to gain weight or muscle weight, then I need to have the meat, I need to have the fish, I need the chicken. And that's not necessarily true. If, and there's a lot of studies now people say where they, the meat and the chicken and the fish is really kind of like the middleman to the protein that you want to get. You know, they're eating the food that supplies the protein and the grains and the vegetables and all that stuff, and, and you should just go ahead and eat that. Um, but so, I, I again, that, that's, a, that's a constant for me. So I weigh all my food so I know exactly what I'm putting into my body, how much I'm getting, and then I chart it into an app so I know how much what my macros are, my, my protein, my fats, my carbohydrates. And I find myself, that's another thing that discipline, right? So now I can see on a chart, okay, how am I doing? If I'm getting too much fat in my body, you know, that's not what I want. So I need to adjust what I'm going to eat in the next meal. So again, it just goes to that discipline. All right. So when you get together with the fellas, if you've got a reunion with the Rangers or you get together with Dugay or Greshner or any of the Kings, are you having a few adult pops still or is that out of the diet altogether? Oh, no, no, no. That's, that's charted in. I, I have, uh, I like my... Actually, my drink of choice now is like a nice clear tequila with some grapefruit juice. So grapefruit juice got no fat in, obviously some sugar, but it's a that's a. If I'm going to drink something, I think to me that's the healthiest thing to drink. But again, you know what, Jim? It's 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 living life all out, and if you, it's a chance to have fun with your friends. Like I think it's a whole old Herb Brooks saying. He said, if you're going to fly with the eagles at night, you got to wallow with the pigs in the morning. So if you're going to go out and have your cocktails, go do it. Have fun. I mean, you can't do it all the time, obviously, but if it's a chance to have fun. Go all out. Don't go halfway. Have a blast. But then you've got to get up at 3.30 the next morning or whatever your wake-up time is, and you've got to get your work done. Like, don't let going out at night ruin the work that you're supposed to do the next morning. Are you craving some protein after an amazing workout? Well, this time, don't make a shake. Don't eat a bar. Instead, reach for a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Wild Trapper, because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and it's tender, and it's made with real strips of steak, quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire, and Old Trapper is a family-owned business. They take their smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Like, who wants dried, rough beef in a bag? No one. It's like eating a shoe. Old Trapper, though, is the real deal, and it comes in four amazing flavors— Old-fashioned, is sweetened with a touch of brown sugar goodness, teriyaki-peppered, and hot and spicy. For those of you who like to take things up a notch. So next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? talk hockey really quickly you came to LA in that stunning trade that sent Marcel Dion to the Rangers in 87 so go back to that Tom what was your reaction when you were told that you were traded for Marcel Dion and headed to LA well it's funny because your, your first reaction when you get traded your ego kind of kicks in you know and you want to make sure you get, get traded for a good player right? <laughs> right. You get traded for a bad player right and Marcel Dion was a fantastic player I mean no, no disrespect to him but uh, I'm exaggerating when I say this, but he's like 70 years old when I get traded for him. You know, he's like, I mean, he's an old guy. He was at the end of his career. So I was like, like, oh, my God. You know, I, and again, part of me was happy, a great player and all that kind of stuff, but he was about at the end of his career. But, you know, I was, I, I look back, and you were part of it there. You know, I was so fortunate because uh, when I first got there, we had a good team. There's no problem with the team, but we weren't really good. And then all of a sudden, Wayne Gretzky got traded there, and we became, you know, like a rock band, right? Everybody was there. You know, all the movie stars were in the locker room all the time. We we became like we traveled on the road. Everybody wanted a piece of us. It was Los Angeles. It was Wayne Gretzky. Um, so I was so fortunate to to finish my career there in that situation where you know instead of being on a team that was kind of fading off in the sunset, it was uh, it was the place to be. I mean, Marcel Dion might have been seventy during that trade, but remember, Tom, he was awesome. He was part of that Triple Crown line. Yeah. He was yeah. oh man, he was a great player in his prime. God, that guy was strong too, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. That's the thing about him. He was a gritty player. We played him in a playoff series. People showed me the video all the time in 1980-81 when I was at the Rangers. And back then, they, they just ranked the teams 1 through 16 and made the playoffs in the first place. team. didn't matter what conference you were in or anything. The first place team played the 16th and so on. And I think we were 15th and they were second overall. And we had a huge brawl at the L.A. Forum after the first period of the first game. 
And he was one of the guys on the ice. Everybody was on the ice. And he didn't back away from anybody. He was taking on. We had Eddie Hosper. I was a real tough guy, and he was taking him on. So he was a skilled player. He, he competed all the time. He was tough. Um, he, he was he was a fantastic player. So, Tom, Gretzky, you mentioned. God, it was like the most amazing thing, amazing time, because I'd grown up in Los Angeles. I was an L.A. native. We had season tickets not only to the L.A. Kings when I was a kid, but the L.A. Sharks of the old WHA. So I really had an wow. appreciation. I mean, you know, like the, the forum would have like 7,500 people, and the Kings sucked, but it was fun, and we'd go in the forum club. And the fact that Wayne Gretzky in his prime to come to L.A. was like the most jaw-dropping trade, not in hockey, but literally in any sport – when you yeah. first heard that he was coming to L.A., what went through your mind? Well, I, I was back here. I was back in New York. It was during the summer. It was August 9th or whatever it was. And, uh, and back then, there was no Twitter and all that kinds of stuff. I was watching ESPN. And that was really the only source other than, you know, other than Jim Rome, what was going on in the sports world. And uh, they started, this rumor started coming on. And they admitted, they, listen, the rumors coming on. But even them, they themselves were kind of, like unsure of it, kind of laughing, like you're thinking, there's no way. And Wayne Gretzky, like up until that point in the hockey world, you know, there's no thought of Wayne Gretzky getting traded. So when he, when it finally, as the day went on, it became clear and clear that he was getting traded and get traded to the team I was on, you know, Los Angeles Kings. I was like, it, seriously, I felt like a better hockey player all of a sudden. Like you felt like, like now you're more relevant. You know, now you're you're much more part of the hockey world, the sports world, because Wayne Gretzky is going to be there. So it was fantastic. I mean, it was just it was a boost for everybody. He was one of those, you know. I, listen, I obviously haven't played the other sports, but there's not many athletes that I've seen that have that ability to make everybody better around him just by the fact that he got traded there. It's not his on-ice play, his way he carried himself and his whole persona and aura about him. So he was uh, he was a great teammate. I think anybody who's around him, as you were, knew that it just he had this special thing that even at a young age where he knew what his importance in the sports world was, and particularly with hockey, and he carried himself a certain way. It wasn't just his on-ice performance. It was the way he carried himself on and off the ice. So, Tom, one more thought about that, because you're right. He knew. He knew from a very early age that he was different, and he was significant. He was special. But physically, obviously, you look at Gretz. He's not imposing in any way. Yeah. Like, there's nothing exceptional about him physically. So what yeah. made him so unique and so dominant? Yeah, you know, I, I say this to people all the time when I'm speaking. And I say to them, listen, you don't have to be some special specimen. You, like, Wayne Gretzky wasn't given a gift when he was born. You know, maybe players like, you know, LeBron James, because they're taller and all that kind of stuff, they're given that gift. But to me, the great athletes I've been around, the, the common denominator to me is that they just, they have decided that they want to be great. So I had a dream to play in the NHL. Wayne Gretzky had a dream to be the best player that ever played in the NHL. And we both accomplished our dreams. And that's, I tell people, if I was to ever do anything again, I, I would not just dream of doing something. I would dream of being the best of what I do. You know, don't, don't just dream of being, like you did this with your career. I, I, I really admire you because I think you didn't dream of just being a broadcaster or something or a sports journalist. You, you wanted to be one of the best, and you've accomplished that. And I think Wayne's the same way. He accomplished his goal of being one of the best athletes that's ever played the game and certainly one of the best players that ever played in the National Hockey League. No, I appreciate you saying that about me, Tom. And I'm amazed even at how productive you are and how effective you are and how many people you're inspiring right now. Before you go, I will say, you did assist on Gretzky's goal that <laughs> tied Gordie Howe's all-time point record. What do you remember about that play? <laughs> it's, it's funny. That's a funny story, really. It actually ended up Bernie Nichols had scored the goal. Wayne had passed to me, and I passed to Bernie, so he got the point. But it was uh, uh, Gordie Howe had been traveling around with us because he was going to be there when Wayne tied and broke the record. But Wayne didn't get, couple, didn't get the points for a couple of games, so it was great for us because we're hanging around with Gordie Howe, was another legend. We get Wayne Gretzky playing with us, Gordie Howe traveling with us. We're like kids in the candy store. We were hanging around with all these great, great players. And so we got on the ice. It was the first period, and it was a four-on-four. Four. So it was like a hockey hall of fame. There's you know, Paul Coffey, Mark Messier, Yerry Curry. I think Charlie Huddy was the other player on for, uh, for, LA, for Edmonton. And then we had uh, Bernie Nichols, Steve Duchesne, and Ber uh, Wayne, and myself. So I was like the defensive player out there. The other three were all offensive players. And, of course, Edmonton, they weren't paying any attention to me at all. Wayne got the puck along the side of the boards, and two of them went to Wayne and figured because they understand the situation here. So I'm left all alone, like basically on a breakaway, going in on Bill Ranford. Now, I'm panicking because I know that, listen, this is going to be the point where Wayne you know, ties the record. I'm thinking, I'm not a goal scorer. I've scored like 25 goals my whole career. So I get to the front of the net, and Bernie Nichols is being covered by Charlie Hardy over the side of the net. I pass the Bernie. I get in the panic move, and Bernie somehow tips it into the net and scores. So now the, the building goes crazy. Everybody on the ice is jumping all over the place and everything. 
And Bernie's going to me, he's like, what the heck were you thinking about passing to me? And I'm thinking, I don't want the puck. I don't know what to do with it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty funny. I watched the video now, and I just you can't see the, the interaction with Bernie and I, but it was pretty funny. Yeah, it's really funny. Yeah, and my bad. Bernie was the one who put that one home. You know, so then, yeah. And then you played with Phil Esposito in New York. What was that like? Yeah, man, that's what I mean. I was so lucky to start my career with Phil and ended with Wayne. They, like Phil was a god for me. I, you know, growing up in Canada, we had this big series in 1972 where they played the Russians. And you know, Phil had a great career just in general, but he really came out in the series and was a dominant player. In fact, he lectured the whole country of Canada at one point on TV because we weren't getting. This is like a, a big series against Russia. It was supposed to be an exhibition series, and the Russians were way better than we anticipated. So Wayne had, I mean, Phil had got in front of the whole country and, you know, lectured us that we weren't supporting the team enough. And he really stuck his neck out. And then they went out and won. So, like, he looked like, and rightfully so, it looked like he'd really inspired everybody. So when I came to New York, and I remember the first time I walked in the Rangers locker room, it was the day of a game I wasn't playing. They just brought me in to sign my contract. And uh, he had gone over to the trainers, and I could see them whispering. And obviously they're telling they're telling Phil who I am. He had no idea who it was. And uh so uh, he comes walking over to me in the locker room, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I mean, all my life I've been dreaming about playing in the NHL. Here I am in the NHL locker room, day of a game, and one of the greatest players that ever played is walking over to me. And I, I could have died, got to have it right then. He, uh, he walks over to me and he says, uh, Tommy, I'm Phil Zito. You know, like, I need to get an introduction. He says, Tommy, it's uh, great to meet you. I've heard a lot of great things about you. And yeah, I'm looking really looking forward to playing with you. And, and obviously, they had told him you know who I was. So it was totally. But just the fact that those words came out of his mouth that he said he was looking forward to playing with me, it was just an unbelievable feeling that a player like that would do that. So it was. Uh, he was a great guy, great teammate. Uh, he ultimately was the general manager that traded me away, but uh, huh. he treated me fantastic. Yeah. So. He was a good dude. All right. So Tom, if you had 25 goals in 11 years, how many fights did you have in the NHL? <laughs> I think that I think it's uh, twenty or twenty-five. I fought a lot early in my career. It's one of those deals like you you need to come in, you need to show everybody that first of all you're willing to do it and that you're tough enough to do it. And then most of the time they leave you alone. And I kind of settled like when Herb Brooks came in, he didn't really necessarily want me fighting that much. He wanted me to be that steady defenseman that he could count on all the time to be on the ice. You know, you, when you get in a fight, you got a five-minute penalty. Obviously, sometimes you may get a ten-minute, so you're missing a big chunk of a period. So he really he didn't want me playing that role as much. And, and I think I'd really established it anyways. That people weren't you know, messing with me and they were aware that I could you know, take care of things. Today. So he wanted me to be that steady guy. So that's really the role I fell into. All right, so really quickly, like old school, we would always talk about, yeah, well, there's a place for fighting in the game. And those who understand hockey would always defend it. And I would always defend it and say, hey, look, because I, I fell into line with everybody else who said it's better than dropping the sticks. Or, I mean, better to drop the sticks than use the sticks the wrong yep. way it's gonna it's a way too chippy a game otherwise knowing what you know right now is there still a place in the game for fighting i uh, no, i don't think there's a place in the game for fighting the way the game is now i think there's a few factors when so when i was drafted for instance i was a six-round draft pick and they they drafted me because i was a big tough physical defenseman uh when they draft defensemen now or players in general they're typically not drafting them to be you know, physical and tough because the rules just don't really allow it. So they're, they're not drafting those kind of players. They're drafting more skilled, fast skaters. You know, size doesn't matter as much, although if you're big and you can still skate, obviously you've got an advantage. So those, there's really not many of those players that are available to, to play pro hockey right now at the NHL level. And the rules just, it just like when we fought, like it was usually it was with a purpose. Like you were trying to intimidate the other team. You're trying to intimidate another player. But that just that part of the game is gone now. The rules just don't allow for that. Uh, so it's it's gone. I I still love it. I I think it's important to have it. Uh, although I, like I'm saying, I think it's gone I, more because you're just making sure everybody stays honest. But again, the the game and the um, the strategy of intimidating people just is not part of the game anymore. Who's the toughest guy you fought? Like I remember at that time, right around that time, I sat down with Tiger Williams for a TV interview. Man, he scared the hell out of me. I remember, <laughs> I mean, just those guys. You know, Dave Semenko obviously yeah. was a tough, tough guy. Who was the toughest guy you ever dropped gloves with? Oh, it'd be Marty McSorley. He, uh, Marty, Marty too. and I became teammates out in L.A., but we were playing a game in Pittsburgh. It must have been like my third or fourth year, and Marty was just breaking in. And, and I mean this is a total compliment to Marty because he made himself into an excellent, like really good hockey player. But when he first started, Jim, I'm telling you, like he couldn't play in a beer league. Like, he just couldn't skate there like that. So if he was going to stay in the league, he was going to have to fight and fight every night. So something happened during the game, and I didn't know who he was, so we grabbed each other. And I actually did okay in the fight. Uh, I, I wouldn't say he beat me, and I certainly didn't beat him. It was a pretty good fight. 
but the problem was that once I fought him now, he now knew that I could fight and I was willing to fight. And, and again, for him to stay in the league, he had to fight all the time. So every time we played him, even if nothing was going on, he just get by me and go, Layla, let's go. And I finally go, listen, I'm not keeping you in the league anymore. You find somebody else. I'm not fighting right. you anymore. So it was, uh, so he was pretty funny. He was a great teammate, though. He was, uh, he, again, he continued to be a tough player, and he really made himself into a good hockey player. Too. I'm not going to keep you in the league, Marty. You know what's amazing, Tom? Because you've been on the other side. Like, I remember when he was a player rep, and I was always amazed. He was really cerebral, right? I used to interview yep. him all the time and talk about labor issues. So on the one hand, you had this guy who, like as you said, when he started off, he wouldn't have made it in a beer league, but he was talking about super cerebral technical issues. I was always amazed at how cerebral he was and the way he approached it off the ice. Yeah, and, and he was the same way. Like I said, like you're totally right. Really surprised you what a like a intelligent man he was. You know, watching him play, like he was just an animal on the ice. And like I said, probably I would say probably more than anybody else I played with or against his improvement from when he started to when you know he finished his career uh, was was by far the most. Like he really worked at his game, staying out after practice and really you know perfecting his craft, and he really became a good player. And the key to it was sometimes players will do that. They'll improve as a player. They start off as a tough guy. They'll improve as a player. And then they don't continue that tough play anymore. But not with Marty. I mean, right to the day he finished playing, he would take on everybody. Like, I saw him one night in the playoff series, uh, Kings against the Leafs, and was that 91 or whatever it was. And he got into a scratch. I think he ran into Doug Gilmore. I was going to say it was Dougie Gilmore. I was just going to say. Yeah. Oh, God. Wendell Clark hit him with a punch so hard. And you could tell it just about Rock Marty, but like his, like his heart was like he just would not quit. He would not go down. You know, he just continued to fight and everything like that. And I, I was sitting there watching. I think, wow, that was like a hell of a punch. It would knock out most people, and Marty just wouldn't back down at all. Dude, was that not the series, Tom, where Gretz, when in Toronto, they wrote about him skating around the piano on his back, and Gretz, did he not guarantee the win? And he looked into the yeah. cameras and said, to my good friend Jim Rome, we got the karma. Like, what was Gretz like before Game 7 of that series? Yeah, he was just, you know what? I, I, nothing really changed with, with Wayne. I mean, he just, I, like, his, his demeanor amongst everybody else never changed. But once you got him on the ice and you saw the way he was acting, it was clear that you know, that lit a fire under him. And he, I tell you, he just, um, he just had, like, again, it, he just had that heart to him that he wanted to make the difference. But, like, not in a selfish way. That was the key to it. It was always, like, about team. Like, even when he would, you know, take a long shift. We had a funny story. I saw Jay Miller, who had been a king for a while. Yeah. And he was a, part of the Boston Boone alumni on Sunday. And it kind of reminded me of a story. I, I, I think it's okay to tell now because Wayne was really respectful of his teammates and everything. But Wayne would have those, you know, three or four or sometimes five minute shifts, not because he was being selfish, but because he really felt like he had something going that he could make a difference on the ice. And we were playing a game in LA one time and uh, we had a veteran team. Larry Robinson was there, Dave Taylor, myself, and, you know, John Tonelli and all these guys had been around a long time. And, and Wayne had a long shift at the end of the period. We were playing bad in the period. We got in the locker room, and Jay Miller made some comment, like, you know, we'd probably be better if uh, guys didn't see it, stay out there for those three or four-minute shifts. Obviously pointing his finger at Wayne, um, which you just don't That's do. That's a balls. Jay, Jay, oh, yeah, I know. So Wayne, and he never does this. He threw his uh, gloves and stick in front of, Mar- uh, in front of Jay Stahl and said, listen, if you think you can do any better, you go ahead and do it. And, and again, that was so unlike Wayne. And, and the whole room was just dead silent. And Jason Miller just didn't know what to say at all. And Wayne, pretty quickly, probably within 30 seconds, you know, he, he composed himself and grabbed the sticks and gloves. And he went over and tapped Jason. He said, come on, let's get this thing going. Like, kind of like, okay, let's move on from it kind of thing. And that wasn't like, for Wayne to get to that point, he never did that. And he would apologize right away. Because that's not the way he handled himself. But it was just funny. Jay had made that comment that, uh, you know, we should stay with that. I, love that, just, I love that story. I love that story. Improve visibility and save money at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Stop by for their See Better Drive Safer sale where you can earn a $15 gift card after mail-in rebate when you purchase either Sylvania headlight bulbs or Bosch Focus or Trico Titan wiper blades. They'll even install your wiper blades for free while you wait. Do not risk your safety because of poor visibility. Let the professional parts people at O'Reilly help you find just what you need. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices, every day. 
So, Tom, really quickly, like, obviously you're really connected. You're still in the New York area, and you're with the Rangers. Are you still connected to your former Kings teammates? Do you see guys? Do you talk to guys? Who do you still connect with from your days back here? Yeah, you know, I keep in touch quite a bit with Luke, Luke Robitaille. Luke, I, I admire totally. You know, I think is sometimes uh, athletes will become like a president or something of an organization more as a figurehead, you know, to go golfing with sponsors and anything like that. But, but Luke is really, like, he's a businessman. Like, he's sunk himself into the numbers. He knows the business. He's also got a fantastic personality. He does a lot in the community. But he really is sharp when it comes to being, like, a real president of an organization. So I've kept in touch with him quite a bit. Uh, Tim Waters and I played together in defense quite a bit. And we've stayed in touch over the years. He's actually over in China now coaching. The Kings have got some program over in China that he's coaching at youth hockey over there. So he's, that's quite an experience for him. So, But, um I'd say the rest of them, maybe Steve Duchesne once in a while, uh, Dave Taylor occasionally. Um, actually, I saw Jay Wells. He had been a Ranger, so he was uh, in New York, New York and Boston this weekend. So not as much as I'd like to. We, I love that team. You know, I really love New York. So when I first got traded to Los Angeles, I was I was not happy. But once I got there, we had a fantastic group of guys, even before Wayne got there and, and, and after. So it was a, a fun team to play Oh, you for. took to it. You did great, I thought. I yeah, you really took to L.A. And then finally, like, Luke, not to be disrespectful, correct me if I'm wrong, but Luke, he's such a rock star anyway, such a huge personality. But the fact of the matter is, drafted where he was drafted, Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, we used to kind of laugh about it, he could barely skate when he started, yeah. right? Yeah, it seemed, you know what, obviously didn't go to the same level Wayne did, nobody has really, but that same kind of mentality. You're right, he wasn't a great skater, he wasn't the biggest guy, just had a huge heart, like he, and he competed, like he really wasn't like a tough guy. But when he was out in the ice, he competed to, to win. He had a great, great shot. He had that kind of nose for the net, you know, knew how to score goals. But just a, just a heart. And that was, I tell you, that's the one thing I look back at in my career, that all those great athletes that I was so fortunate to be around, Larry Robinson was like this. They were like, they were like little kids, really. And I mean that in a very good way. Like, they just loved playing the game. Like, they just came to work. And they didn't even consider it work. They just loved to play. They liked to practice. They loved being around their teammates. And all those great players had that. Phyllis Mazzito had that. You know, just they just love playing the game, and Luke was in that category. I think a lot of that stuff, Tom, is a hockey thing. You guys grow up in these small towns, on these farms. Fundamentally, you respect each other, you respect the sport, you respect the opportunity. What I need to know finally then is what's the status with your book? Is it done? When is it coming out? What's it going to be called? What can we expect? Well, the book is called True Grid Life. Uh, it'll be coming out after Survivor. I've, I've obviously got some legal restrictions on me while Survivor is still on, so there's some stuff I want to talk about in Survivor, Survivor and stuff I've learned from that. So it'll be out after uh, Survivor is done. But again, it's called True Grit Life. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, it's just, you, know like, you know the hockey background. To do a book about yourself, you're feeling kind of like awkward, like, geez, I don't want to talk about myself in a book. But after I started doing it, it became clear it's not going to be about me. It's experiences that happened to me and how I, maybe if I made a mistake and how I recovered and, and why, like what in my past gave me the ability to recover from mistakes that I made? You know, what did I learn from all those things in the past? So uh, I was, it was, when I read it the first time, I, I got to tell you, like I, I wanted to be motivational and I'm reading it and everything. And I'm trying to forget that it's about me. And I was pretty fired up the way it came out that it's, it's really going to try to send the message to people that listen, all those little things that you're doing day in and day out that you may not get credit for, they are working. They're helping so many other people that you don't even realize. I'm so fascinated by that. I'm so glad that you finally came around to the realization that, that the way I live could inspire others who can learn from this sort of thing. And it, it's been amazing to watch you develop this online and now to talk about this in person. When are you coming to California so we can have some tequila and grapefruit juice? Love it, love it. Well, I'll be there for the final of uh, uh, Survivor. I think it's like December 17th or something like that. So we've been together. And i got to tell you one thing, and I really mean this very seriously. So we knew each other when you were just getting started. And I am really proud of you, too, the way you have conducted yourself. Like you have, like I talk about the true good life and the work ethic and being there every day. And you're a perfect example of that. You've had to work very hard to get where you are right now. So I'm very proud of you. I'm proud of you, too, Tom. I appreciate you saying that. That means the world to me. And, you know, as you and I and anybody else in this world, as you get on in life, those relationships mean so much. And we did come together. And, yes, you and I did have a radio program back in the day. And I'm glad you remember it the way I do. Congrats on everything. (laughs) Great to get caught up with you. And when you come to California, be sure you let me know. So let's get together. You got it, bud. Great talking to you. Trade pros, whether you specialize in service or new construction, Ferguson knows firsthand how much work goes into a hard day's work. This is why they're committed to offering the products and solutions that you need to get the job done right the first time, every time. 
with expert associates in more than a thousand locations across the country and unmatched selection of products tools and supplies as well as same or next day delivery and their time-saving pro pickup service you can trust that doing business with ferguson will be the easiest part of your day remember for projects and teams of any size and scope Ferguson has a winning game plan for contractors like you. When the pressure is on, you can count on Ferguson. Visit ferguson.com and find a location near you. Man, that was so fun. My guy Tom Laidlaw picking up right where we left off two decades ago. What a great conversation. Now, if you like that, I've got 100 more just like it. 101 actually go ahead navigate the back catalog there is something for everybody and i will put our guest list and its range of topics up against anybody's to make sure you don't miss anything in the future make sure you get subscribed and the next 100 episodes will find you do it it's simple it's fast it's free i'll catch you next wednesday for ep 103 but in the meantime here are your voicemails first new message jim this is bud there's a TV show called Wheeler Dealers, and they're going to be doing a show where they resurrect an X4TI. So I thought you'd want to uh, record that and uh, relive your nightmares of that hand grenade car. I'm out. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim, what's up? This is David from Buffalo, man. I got to jump in here and talk about the Chicago Bears and that curious play calling at the end of the game. I mean, you know, Matt Nagy, Dennis Quaid thinks you make interesting decisions. What the hell kind of decision was that? I get it. Trubisky's nowhere near Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson. Yes, I get it. Khalil Mack's a great player, but it seems like the Bears are going backwards, and their head coach is a big part of that. Message saved. Next message. Rome, Drew from Annapolis, Maryland here. Hey, it's the second biggest Dolphins fan to Western Laguna in the jungle. Tell Chiefs fans, don't stress it. Matt Moore is the best backup quarterback in the league. They're going to win three of the next four. And second, I just wanted to tell you, congratulations on making the Hall of Fame. And third, thank you, I'm out. Message saved. Next message. This is Dudley Hungwell from the SLC. When did the fake Silk do the Peloton commercials? Come on. Message deleted. Next message. Hi, Jim. This is Trevor in the 321 Florida Space Coast. I love you. I love the show. I love the XR4TI. Thanks for what they do. I love the clones, the good, the bad, the ugly. Your jungle, Jim, is the best. My man. Message saved. Next message. Jim Rome, Matthew in Oxford, Mississippi. Hey, I liked your take the other day about Jim Dolan, the Knicks, and the whole Cheeto ice cream thing. But while you were rattling off all those minor league teams, I think you forgot to mention the double-A champ Amarillo Sod Poodles. The Sod Poodle is a euphemism for a prairie dog. So, Message deleted. You have no more messages.